0: Welcome to another episode of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. I'm your host, Samir Kaji, and today I'm so excited to bring you my conversation with Chantelle Garvey, co-founder and general partner of edtech-focused Reach Capital. She has a long history in investing in companies in the education space and formerly was a partner in New School's Venture Fund. What I really love about the Reach team is how thoughtfully they've constructed their firm and partnership, which by far is one of the most diverse in all of venture. In this episode we discuss what she's seeing in the education space why unlike many seed managers she is so active with companies well beyond the series a and how she thinks about building a firm that lasts well past her career now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more i'm absolutely thrilled to have this week's show sponsored by frank Rimmerman, who serve as home for over 500 vc firms for their tax and audit needs they're also one of the largest providers of services for the emerging managers community and as somebody that's worked with them for over 10 years, I can attest to the early commitment they made to MicroVC when it was first getting started. If you're a venture firm in the market for audit and tax, be sure to give them a call. Chantel, it's great to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Peter.
0: So before we get into Reach Capital, I want to go back to uh, 2011, 2012 when you joined Jennifer at New School. What? catalyze your movement into venture capital? And what did you see within the education space?
1: So interestingly enough, I had not planned to become a venture capitalist. So I went to Stanford GSB, I, I did the dual degree program and got a master's in education, and a master's in business. And the plan was to make a transition into education technology. I really thought though, that I would be on the operator side. So I planned to either Start an ed tech company or go join an early stage startup. I met Jen for Carolyn when I was at, uh, Stanford and she really convinced me to come work with her at New School. So again, in, you know, 2012, we started investing in ed tech under the New School nonprofit umbrella. And, you know, really the focus at that time was to feed the ed tech market and really build out the ecosystem. We didn't know yet what would become of our portfolio companies, but we really did see this opportunity to leverage technology, to expand access to high-quality education solutions. And if you remember, this is also the time that the iPad had just come out. So we were really seeing a lot of devices going into classrooms, and we really saw entrepreneurs start to build on this one-to-one ecosystem. So one-to-one being one device per student in the classroom, and we saw, again, founders We're thinking about how do we build tools to help support teachers and students with all the technology that was entering the classroom.
0: You were there for three years. You and Jennifer in 2015 decide to launch Reach Capital formally as a separate new organization. What did you see as the core opportunity and and what sort of catalyzed the move from working at new schools to starting um, Reach Capital?
1: Yeah. So again, like you said, a couple years in, basically in 2015, we saw this opportunity to really invest in solutions that were delivering not only strong social returns, but again, also strong financial returns. And remember, we weren't necessarily investing for financial returns initially, but many of our early bets, so companies like Nearpod, like Uzella, like Class Dojo, they started to become category leaders. And they were starting to attract follow-on capital from some of the top-tier uh, venture capitalists. So we wanted to really continue supporting them as they continue to grow. And we really wanted to also be able to participate in that upside. And so it really made sense to have a separate entity that was really structured like a traditional venture fund so that we could, again, uh, be investing both for impact and for financial returns.
0: It makes total sense and, and I know you and Jennifer obviously had experience working together and investing together but what struck me when I was thinking about this is the first fund, I think was around 51 million dollars and you could have gone the route of just yourself and Jennifer. but you brought on two partners fairly early on. what was the thought process of creating a team that had some scale to it with um, at that time was a, a fairly small AUM? and was a little bit unorthodox at the time in terms of having four partners in a micro VC firm.
1: As you know, the most important decision when starting a firm is who you are going to work with. It's really important to have that really strong working foundation and a trusting relationship at the at the forefront. And actually, Jen and I had both worked with our other two partners we brought on. So Wei Chu and Esteban Sosnick, we'd all worked together at new schools. So it was a little bit like bringing the band back together. Um, We'd all knew each other's styles. We all had very complementary skill sets and knew that we were really passionate about this space. And as you said, we were very intentional in bringing on that set of team members early on. And part of that reason was we knew that we wanted to grow in to, to the team. So we knew that we wanted to keep the same team for a while and we kind of grow into the, the team size. But the other reason is that we really wanted to be hands-on with our companies. So again, we're investing at the earliest stage these companies take a lot of support. so We wanted to make sure that we could continue having that hands-on support and provide a lot of portfolio services. So we didn't want to go as far as, you know, like a platform, maybe like more the Andreessen model, but we knew we didn't want to be um, kind of hands-off or light touch. So kind of somewhere in between, we needed to make sure that we had enough partners to really build out um, those portfolio services. And again, at the time, we were still building out the EdTech ecosystem too. So we did a lot of ecosystem building work. We also did a lot of educating the market on impact investing. And so again, we needed a lot of team members to take on these various tasks.
0: Clearly a team that knew each other, knew that you were complementary in both your investing styles as well as personalities. And of course, um, you know, with so many things that we see out in the market, partnership risk and partnership dynamics are critical and components of success, and, and they're really hard to nail. I'm just curious, as you then brought together this team and your fundraising, I think from an LP standpoint, that'd be something that's very positive to have a group that has worked together for so long. But at the time, you know, we were still in the uh, the early days of sector-focused funds, and something like EdTech at the time, I think there's only Learn and Owl that were pure play EdTech Firms, how did that first fundraise go? As you were going out, because you just mentioned impact, you think about ed tech, you think about you know now you have these four partners um, that you need to support. Tell us a little bit about that first raise and how did you go about strategizing on the type of LPs? What was that experience like? Yeah,
1: so we're very fortunate for that first raise is that we were able to bring a lot of our supporters from New Schools over to Reach, and so again because the four of us had all worked at New Schools. A lot of those early LPs already knew us, they knew our working styles, they knew our track records from our new school days. And so that first fund, the mix of LPs was really foundations, high net worth individuals, and strategics. And they are focused on you know, us continuing to again, invest in these high impact companies that were driving and expanding access to education. And then as we moved more towards reach two and reach three, that's when we came, became more inst- intentional about bringing in institutional investors. And that's when we really thought about, hey, we want to make sure that we have this nice blend of investors who are thinking about impact, but also investors who are solely focused on financial returns. Because again, we believe that we're going to be delivering both impact and financial returns. So as we you know, brought on that next wave, the next set, as you said, it was still early, early days in terms of the sector. We still had to prove out, hey, EdTech is a vertical that you need a domain specialist to do well in. And a lot of the skepticism, we we're able to prove that, you know, because we have these domain experts on our team, we are the ones that can win in this space. So things around how do you deal with, you know, the business model challenges in EdTech, you know, selling the schools, how do, you, how do you sell the schools efficiently and still build a large scale business? How do we think about M&A? Who are the key M&A players in the space? And so we were able to kind of prove that out through Funds 1 and 2 and, and then now on 3. And then again, be able to bring in more, more of an institutionalized LP base.
0: I remember having a, a ton of those conversations with you as you were going from Fund 1 to Fund 2. And having the, uh, the tailwinds of all of your LPs back from the new school days definitely helped a lot and got you off the ground. As you did scale, talk a little bit about those conversations with those newer LPs that were focused on financial returns. What exactly was the main difference or how do you characterize the main difference between those types of LPs and the ones that are either strategic impact focused maybe special mandate? Like what did you find in, in those discussions, both in the process and how you pitched yourself
1: the main difference was it all came down to the numbers, right? It was all about what are the performance metrics on your earlier funds, how do you really differentiate yourself in this market? How do you win deals? And how can I trust that you're gonna be able to deliver the returns that you're projecting? So again, in those conversations, it was less about um the impact angle, less about kind of what our companies are doing to improve education, but more about how are we building Sustainable, scalable companies that are going to have outsized returns. And again, in those conversations, we definitely had to talk about what we've learned in EdTech. So, how we've learned, for example, that a bottoms up premium institution model is the way that you get around long sales cycles within education. We talked about the growing number of buyers in the space, whether that be private equity, whether that be other large tech strategics and how our companies were really going to be able to be attractive um, attractive to those buyers. So again, it was, again, less about the education impact piece, I would say, and just more about how do we build large scale companies that can then exit for sizable returns.
0: At least from my experience in talking to a lot of LPs, they actually do like sector specific strategies with the um, belief that if you have domain expertise, you have relationships, you understand how to help those companies, the likelihood of you winning in the the opportunities that you want to win are higher, and that you'll be able to help those companies achieve that next stage of development. Now, the other side of the coin that I often hear is a lot of these LPs don't know these sectors extremely well. And in, in situations like that, sometimes the question of, is this sector big enough? to capture enough alpha over time. Did you get some of those questions? And how should sector specific managers think about answering the question of, well, you seem too narrow?
1: Yeah, um, we definitely, definitely got that question. And I think really, the focus needs to be what is the opportunity, right? And so, you know, if you look at today, only about 3% of education is digitized, right? So again, there's, Huge opportunity, and now we're seeing it with COVID, but there's huge opportunity for future digital growth in this sector. So it's less about what's happening today, but what does that future outlook uh, need to be to, to achieve those, again, alpha returns. So we talk about that. And then again, talking about even our evolution in terms of ed tech and not thinking narrowly about ed tech just being, for example, just K 12, a solution to selling to schools. That, for example, could be could be considered narrow but you know for us at tech we're now investing across the entire spectrum so we're doing everything from early childhood k-12 post-secondary lifelong learning workforce development teacher of work so there, there's a, a much broader subsector in terms of what we're investing in and then we're also doing both b2b we're doing b2c so we're doing marketplaces so lots of different kind of business models as well so i think if there's a sector specific fund it's thinking about How can I uh, talk about the future growth of this sector? And then how can I think about even within my vertical, what are the different expansion opportunities?
0: I agree with you completely there. And oftentimes you're on the lead edge of looking at where the market is going to go and understanding those secular trends. I love asking this question to people that are on a fund three or fund four is you look at the Linear growth of a firm, and sometimes it's linear, sometimes it's e- exponential. In your case, you went from 51 to about 80 to now over 150 million. How much of that was driven by the market itself in terms of the size of seed rounds, your view of the ed tech market, or just what you felt was necessary to build the type of fund profile and portfolio that you felt was optimal for, for reach? Tell us a little bit about how you thought about those things in terms of increasing the fund sizes.
1: Yeah, I would say that the fund size growth was primarily driven by the market um, because our strategy remained relatively the same between fund two and fund three. Similar in terms of scope. So again, I said, you know, across the entire education spectrum, um, similar stage. So we're still going to be investing early, some seed, a couple opportunistic series A and series B. But a couple things that did change is, like you said, seed rounds are getting bigger. Um, this space is also heating up, so we're seeing valuations go up in our in our space. And so what that means is we need to write larger check sizes to get the type of ownership that we want um, to deliver the returns that we're modeling. The check size that it was taken in fund two is maybe double what it's going to take now in fund three, again, to get, those, to, get to those ownership targets um, that we are envisioning.
0: That is certainly true. Like I I look at the average seed round going from about a million bucks at a uh, three or four million dollar pre to what things are right now. And it's, it's routine for us to see seeds that are two and a half to five million, depending on obviously the entrepreneur background and the opportunity they're going after. So totally get that. But it also then I think would speak to if you're writing those type of checks, you're taking more ownership. The type of value a founder would expect from you is higher than if you're writing a tiny check with smaller ownership. And in talking to you know, some of your founders and your teammates, you have built this value system, and you've mentioned not being Andreessen but I do think this hands-on type of philosophy certainly is, is very clear. But you know, with companies like School and Schoolzilla and Nearpod, you were really active throughout the company's life cycle, not the, just that seed round In Nearpod, I think. In particular, you were part of the you know, driving the vocabulary acquisition as well as uh, Nearpod's ultimate acquisition. How do you see the role of a seed fund funder evolve? And like, what is the uh, philosophy you have in not only being there in the zero to one phase, but even beyond that?
1: Yeah, you're right. We definitely have a philosophy to continue to stay with our companies even as they grow beyond our kind of early stage. And we do that in a number of different ways. So one is that we stay on the board throughout their life cycle. So as you mentioned with Nearpod, even when, you know, Insight came in and took a majority stake of that company, we stayed on that board. And really what we really believe is that the sector and domain expertise is still critical even in those later stages. So even as you're building, bringing on later stage investors, other types of expertise, the expertise that we bring in terms of knowing the market, understanding the customer base, being able to still connect companies with uh, the networks that they need within education is still valuable, even at those later stages. So it may look different, um, but the value is still still there.
0: The obvious question, I'm sure you got this from LPs as well, is if you're staying on the board and, and staying so active with some of these companies that are successful. How do you have enough time to manage all of those board seats, all of the portfolio, all the other things that you have to do as a team in terms of sourcing deals? How have you managed that? And have you found anything in particular that's worked well with for for not only yourself, but the entire partnership?
1: Part of it is, as we talked about in the beginning, is we did build our team up to be able to do this from from day one, right? So we do have um, a number of different partners, and we balance the boards across those different partners. And so that's been super helpful. We've also brought in two venture partners, Jim Lovdell, who specializes in content development, and Jennifer Wu, who focuses on our impact work. And we can plug in these venture partners to support companies and take board seats. So we really leverage them to build out our additional capacity as well. The other thing that we do is just we do a lot of support that's across the entire portfolio and we try to scale some of those supports. So for example, we bring the portfolio together every week and we do an AMA. We're bringing in a speaker um, that's talking about different, you know, business topics or tech topics. And again, that's something that the whole portfolio can benefit from um, that, you know, just one of us needs to plan. But um, again, we can do some scalable supports for them. Through those different uh, AMA workshops, so that's just one example, and we also have a whole port-, port portal where we place other, you know, useful resources on our portal. So again, companies can just access that versus, you know, having to keep asking us for the same um, pieces of information and resources. So that's just one example of how we can, you know, build out some scalable supports, but then go deep um, on our separate board um, responsibilities.
0: That's great on the scalable sourcing, whether it's content or the, these events, and doing things to help broader set of companies at once. But clearly, the, the model still is very high-touch, stay on the board, help with all of these things that are probably a, a range of go-to-market hiring, helping them sell into uh, you know, the ed- education space. But it also means that you, ha- you have to get great people on board to continue to scale that high-touch piece of the business. What have you thought about when hiring people, I always get this question from folks as they're getting bigger and they're bringing on whether it's an associate or somebody in ops or even venture partners. And generally speaking, the most successful firms I've found have a central philosophy and an ethos under which they drive their hiring practices. What is that for reach and and how have you executed on hiring
1: So part of our ethos, you know, one is, you know, making sure that these are people that um, are really aligned with the mission and what we're trying to do, right? So we are a team that, again, is trying to improve access to high-quality education. And so we need people that are aligned with that mission and that vision. So I would say that's first and foremost. And then we look for people who uh we call them doers. And again, this is a team that is hands-on. This is a team that's going to hustle on behalf of our founders. This is a team that we want people who are going to go out there uh, and be aggressive to get the, the best deals. And then when we get those deals, they're going to be aggressive to help support those companies. And so, again, we're looking for those people who, again, can can live that ethos of being hands-on, of being founder first, Um, again we really think about being at the service of entrepreneurs as well as learners we're definitely a learning organization and we want to bring people on who are constantly learning constantly curious and you know also you know pushing our thinking as a team
0: the other thing I I sometimes look at is when you hire somebody at a certain position and they increase their role and influence within the organization in venture you don't see it as much where you see it let's say an analyst or an associate go on to partner, at least with the larger historic firms, there was never a partner path. I know you've done that at reach with one of your senior associates who's a partner. Has that always been the methodology? Or was it just this extraordinary person that you didn't want to be prescriptive in in terms of an associate can't have partner path or alternatively, like, hey, this is just how we work?
1: intentional about trying to develop people and we really want reach to be a place where people can grow in their careers and we're really thinking about the legacy of reach and so if we can help groom people within reach to become reach partners that that is what we want to do and so you know as you mentioned um chiang gong on our team she has to start with us as an intern um and so she's been with us for quite a while she's worked with us again knows knows our style, knows our ethos, and um, really found you know reach a home where she could grow her career and again uh, was able to to become partner and we're all for that we're all again for people being able to come to reach and develop their career internally um now what is challenging is again what the different paths look like again we're already five partners now, so um that's that's the part that we um, are working on but We definitely aren't opposed to having internal promotion from within.
0: Yeah, that's great. And as you know, one of the things that has tripped up a lot of firms over the years is the inability to successfully execute on generational succession. And there's so many reasons why that's the case. As you think about reach, and obviously all of you have plenty of years left in investing and managing the firm. but when you go to reach four, five, six, seven, eight, and so on, it really does become a 20 to 30 to maybe even 40-year journey. And at some point, those type of things do come in in the picture as as being priorities. Are there things that you need to do early on to really foster a culture that allows for that successful generational succession to happen at some point?
1: Yeah, I think a lot of it is making sure that we're, you know, helping um, that younger generation grow in their skill set, grow in their, um, their path to a VC. And, you know, what that looks like is, is giving them ownership and responsibility early. And so we are, for example, you know, making sure that people are getting exposure to boards. And, you know, whether that's taking, for, for example, board observer seat first, and then even taking a board seat when they're ready. So we really think that kind of board development early on is super important. We also have a, a pool of capital we call this kind of lab capital where each person on the team has a little bucket of money where they can do an investment that's outside of the traditional uh, investment process and you don't have to get the normal approvals. And so, again, from, from early on, this allows you to really flex that investing muscle. Um, and it's, it's a small pot of money, but, again, it helps you kind of build that that risk tolerance up and make those investments um, early on when, you know, just your name <laughs> is on the line and no one else is, is going to take the heat for that. So again, that's just ways that, again, early on we're, we're trying to uh, groom those, those next generation of investors. for us.
0: That all makes sense. And shifting for a second to something else, you had mentioned earlier in the conversation that EdTech has evolved pretty dramatically away from just K to 12 and now across age ranges, different type of products and solutions now available. Throughout the time you've been very thesis oriented, but I wanna understand what that actually means. So I remember right before Fund 3, you invested in a company called Fourth Rev, which was around this newly formed part of the edtech, which is integrated learning. How does it work internally in, in developing a thesis, making sure it has some flexibility to it, evolving it, and then what is the execution of a thesis as it relates to decision-making on particular portfolio opportunities?
1: I would say we're about a 50-50 blend, thesis-driven and then opportunistic. So we do develop thesis in different areas, uh, but then we're also open to you know what's, what's happening with entrepreneurs and, and what they're bringing us. And so as we think about different thesis areas, we'll go deep. We'll look at different trends. Uh, so, for example, like you mentioned in work integrated learning, we really believe that, you know, the future of higher education is going to rely heavily on, you know, experiences that integrate both academic learning with practical workforce skills. And so we'll think about that as the overarching framework. And then we'll go deep underneath that thesis to understand where are the key drivers, where are the market dynamics, where are the pain points. And then we'll maybe create a market map to say, here's all the different companies in the space that are addressing this issue. And we'll we'll map them against different levers. And what's nice about that is then we can be proactive. So we can say, hey, here's all the companies in the space. We really like the way this company is attacking this problem. And we'll go after that company proactively. And so it lets us be more proactive versus reactive. I think the other benefit is that you spot trends and you can be early. Again, as an early stage investor, we want to spot trends before others do. And so by doing this thesis work, we're again thinking about what's around the corner, what are going to be some of those key market drivers. And then the last thing I'd say is it allows you to go quick. When we saw Rev, which you mentioned, they fit squarely into our work integrated learning thesis. They bring together leading universities with the best technology companies to create and deliver Learning experiences with direct pathways to qualifications and jobs in the digital economy. It was easy to spot them and move quickly, given we were looking for companies that integrate academic learning with workforce skills. And again, so that's the other benefit is once you find that company, you can move quickly because you've already done the foundational work to understand the drivers and the pain points, uh, and it allows you to make that investment very quickly.
0: Those are fantastic points, and one point that I do want to double click on is this notion of being proactive and not waiting for deals to come to you and using systems to do that. What does that actually mean in practice for you? Is there software you're using or are there other things that you're employing that allow you to ensure you're not missing the best deals within your overall thesis of ed tech?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can do the traditional looking in different uh, systems, whether that's like a pitch book or a crunch base. And again, um, putting in some of those keywords to to identify some of the companies in the space, um we're also just doing a lot of understanding of the market through market research right so we're we're reading about um, these different spaces and and they'll be as part of some of that market research. The other thing I like to do is just even use social media um so a lot of times for us uh, because we're in education, we'll see what our teachers talking about um when it relates to this, and they will unearth some companies that we haven't come across. So uh, that's just, a, you know, another example of, you know, a way to uh, go after a company, even through their kind of social media channel.
0: That's actually an interesting thing I hadn't, I hadn't thought of in terms of a way to source, source opportunities that aren't part of the, uh, the traditional mainstream. And you've always been somebody that's very systems oriented. And, you know, the topic that a lot of people don't like to talk about, but is a, a key part of running a firm, especially as you raise from institutional investors, is that you have to have an institutional back office. And you and I, um, I think years ago, you were spending a lot of time thinking about that, whether that was banking, fund admin, CFO work. A lot of people still underestimate the importance of that. But when you were talking to LPs, especially the more institutional ones, how much time did they spend on that topic? And how important you know, is it for reach to continue to execute as a firm, not just as it relates to traditional investing?
1: So that was an, a learning as we did you know, try to bring in more institutional investors. They care about this a lot. So we would have separate diligence meetings that were solely dedicated to just the back office and just the operations. So a lot of questions that we hadn't encountered, again, in our earlier fundraises that we were now encountering. And I think it's you know, one obvious reason LPs care about this is because you are managing hundreds of millions of dollars for them and they want to ensure that you have the proper processes in place, that the trains are going to run on time, that you have the proper internal controls, um, you know, whether it's from fraud and security. So that's super important and I think that's the obvious reason why they care about it. I think the less obvious reason is just to make sure that the partners aren't spending too much time on operations. And this is something that came up in our last fundraise. And as you know, as time is our most valuable resource. And LPs want to make sure that we're focused on sourcing, investing, and supporting our portfolio companies. So everything outside of that, they would prefer that we spend as little time as possible, again, on those back office and operation pieces. And I think this is something that you know, if I had done it again, you know, would have brought in some of the, the ops and back office support sooner. So we just hired our first internal operations person, our CFO, Jackie Dow. She has been a godsend. I just wish I would have brought her on sooner. You know, as people are building their funds, you kind of think of us like a startup and you want to be scrappy and we don't want to spend on ops. No, I can do that piece of it. But again, you know, just the learning of the more you're spending time on Stuff that's not directly related to the investing piece. It's just not high value. Um, it's actually more valuable for you to spend the money to free up your time. And so that was definitely a learning as we've transitioned um, now from one, two, and, and now to three.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great observation. And there is this ongoing balance in that you want to ensure that the trains are arriving and leaving on time. And there's that Institutional quality as it relates to the ops, but not having you as an investing partner doing it so much where the time opportunity costs become so expensive that it impacts the rest of the firm and, and the, uh, the rest of the uh, investment outlook for the LPs that are in there. So that's a great uh, learning there. Speaking of learnings, so I want to go to our key check segment. The first question I have is now that you've been a VC for roughly 10 years. What's your greatest learning as a VC?
1: My greatest, probably overarching learning is that this is a relationship business and not a transactional business. And so taking the time to invest in relationships early is so important. And that's the relationships with your founders, that's the relationships with your LPs and your investors, with other co-investors. I just think that piece, uh, you can't underestimate how important it is and that's been a learning kind of over time. And uh, you're ma- making sure that I invest in those relationships as I think about even the investing work.
0: It definitely is a, is a relationship game. and I can certainly attest to that. The next question I have, and everyone has their anti-portfolio and a company or two that you miss, that you regret. And I'm less interested in the company itself, but rather the lesson that an investor has learned from it. Do you have a company or two that you look back and say, okay, I miss this. And now that I've learned from it, I would look at things differently. I'd love to I just understand from your perspective, what type of learnings do you have from any of the misses?
1: I think a lot of learnings come from trying to invest at the earliest stages. And again, you know, when you're investing early, a lot of it is just around the people, and their ability to execute. So there's been times where I've passed on companies where the team is super strong. Um, there's very strong founder market fit, but I'm not as excited about where the product is today, or I'm not as excited about the business model. And what have I what I've learned is those are things that if you have a strong team, that team will figure it out, right? And so don't get so hung up on what the business model is today or, you know, the shape that the product is even in today, and be more influenced by uh, a compelling team. So that's, that's happened, you know, quite a few times. I think the most recent one I I talked about was um, this company called uh, Career Karma, very compelling founder, in in an interesting space. And when I first saw it, I wasn't as excited about a lead gen business model. Um, And again, that's something that can can change and evolve over time. Um, so just too narrow uh, in terms of how I approach that, but he's a strong founder, uh, you know, again, strong founder market fit in terms of being able to build, uh, build out a strong uh, community-based business. And so um, that's one that I've been learning from recently.
0: It's funny for those that are fairly new to, uh, to venture or tech. If you look at some of the most successful companies and, and look at the first pitch decks and business models, you wouldn't even recognize them, and usually the best founders figure those things out over time, especially as they iterate their own thinking. They hear feedback, and it's actually pretty amazing to see the the number of successful pivots that we've seen. Sometimes they're not pivots; they're just iterations. I think that's a, you know that's a great piece of advice to provide anyone that is getting into it to really look at the founder, not only the founding team, but looking at their overall domain expertise and their observations within a, a particular segment. So I love the, the founder market fit uh, note that you just had. The final thing is you probably sat on a lot of boards with other investors, you've co-invested with people, you've probably built relationships with some great investors. And I always find that there's some investor out there whose philosophy really resonates with your own and that you've maybe not modeled completely after, but you really, really admire. Is there an investor out there that you would say, hey, I really admire this person, I love the way they think, and it's helped you catalyze your own thought process?
1: Yeah, I would say there's, there's quite a few, but the first that, that come to mind would just be the k the mission Mitch and Frida, and you know, what they've built at k Capital, and that's really, a lot of what they've done is what we've modeled reach upon. And this idea that you can prioritize impact, you can prioritize diversity, and it doesn't have to be this trade-off for financial returns. And they've really been, I think, instrumental in, in showcasing that. And so, really have have really looked to them in terms of the way that we think about reach and the way that we, the way that I personally um, invest and in, in want to have that that dual lens and dual focus.
0: They've done so many great things for the ecosystem. So that's definitely a you know a good investor uh, group to model behind. Chantel, thanks uh, again for being on the show. I've really enjoyed being part of the Reach journey as you as you've all grown, and I'm excited about the future.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed it. To learn more about Chantel and Reach Capital, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review, as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released.